0: As our kids are making their way out, if you have your Bibles, I invite you, if you would, take them out, turn them on, and join me in the the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, the very first chapter, as we are continuing in our Advent uh, sermon series that we've titled Name Above All Names. As being in the season of Advent, Advent is a season of waiting anticipating. Maybe your kids, like I said earlier, have one of those advent calendars where day by day they have a, an activity that they can perform or a treat that they receive as they are anticipating the arrival of Christmas Day when they get uh, all of their presents and there's the joy. It's a way to keep them entertained. It's kind of like an appetizer, if you will, right, to, to what is ultimately coming. And it's a season of waiting in our house as well as over the last several weeks, our youngest, Emerson, who turns seven tomorrow, has been reminding us day after day after day as he's counting down the days to his birthday. And what makes it even more is that because Bryant, our oldest, has a birthday at the end of October, and Emerson's is at the beginning of uh, December, to just help ourselves out a little bit and not have to, like, spread ourselves super thin and spend a whole bunch of money, we just kind of combine their birthdays somewhere, birthday parties, somewhere in the middle of November. And so they get to bring friends and families. So Bryant gets a big present on his birthday, and he waits for his party. And Emerson gets all of the presents from family and friends, and then he waits for his birthday— in the big anticipation of the big present for uh, from Sarah and I on his, Sarah and me on his birthday, and so he has been waiting, and it's it's great to watch as he is waiting. He he just displays all of those different symptoms that come upon us when we are anticipating something and we're waiting for something, as he's poking us with all kinds and prodding us with all kinds of questions to figure out what his present is. And I just keep telling him, you're not getting one. You already got presents. They're all back there. And he's poking and he's prodding because when we're put in this situation, in this place where we're waiting, we have a tendency to just get overwhelmed with stress and anxiety. And it's not just, especially not just true when what we're waiting for is something that we anticipate with joy and expectation, but lives that are characterized by waiting are lives that are prone to that same kind of anguish and anxiety as we wait for a child to be born. As there are some women who wait year after year and try after try to even become pregnant as we wait for the doctors to get back with a diagnosis, as we wait for that milestone in our lives, as we wait for that friendship to come back together, as we wait, it can be difficult. Because the truth of the matter is, as we sit in that season of waiting, we are people who know that we ourselves are those that are prone to breaking our promises. You see, in the season of waiting, what we find out, what waiting exposes to us, is that we're not really in control of our circumstances. And we are often waiting on someone else, or we're waiting for a piece of missing information, or sometimes we're just waiting for the days to progress. And it's a constant reminder of how out of control we actually are, how dependent upon others we are, and when we recognize and realize we are people prone to breaking our promises, we definitely know that everybody else is prone to break theirs. And we suffer under the weight of broken promises. The good news is that God never breaks His promises. That doesn't mean that He won't make us wait for Him to fulfill His promises. And it's oftentimes in that waiting that we allow ourselves to project upon God what we know to be true about ourselves and the people that are around us as we anticipate God to somehow drop the ball and break His promises. And it's in those times of anxious waiting that what we need is a reminder from the Lord that will carry us through that season of waiting, a reminder that assures us that when it is all said and done and God's promises are fulfilled, it really will be worth it in the end. And the entrance of Jesus Christ into the world is proof that God is always faithful to fulfill his promises. And it proves that God's promises are really worth the wait. We're going to read the context of the name, title of Christ that we're going to consider this morning. But we'll focus on what the angel Gabriel calls Jesus in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Luke writes, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Would you pray with me? Father, even now I'm struck by the words Mary. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to, to me. Let it be to me according to your word. Lord, in that one simple statement of faith, she signed up for humiliation, shame, isolation. But through that all, she signed up for an everlasting joy. A joy that she would taste in the birth of this promised one, but a joy ultimately, Heavenly Father, that she would experience when He was raised from the dead. And all of her grief and all of her despair was washed away in a single moment when she realized that even when it seemed darkest and your promises seemed broken, nothing is impossible with God. So settle on our hearts this morning the reality that you are the God who keeps your promises, and your promises are worth the wait. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus Christ, in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, even in his birth, proves that God's promises are worth the wait. In this series, we have been looking at names or titles that are given to Jesus Christ throughout Scripture. The last two names that we looked at over the last couple of weeks were really drawn from Isaiah's prophecy in the Old Testament as they anticipate the first coming, that's literally what advent means, the first advent of Jesus Christ, hundreds of years before he was even born. We saw that he is Emmanuel, God with us. And we focused that Sunday morning on the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ, that He really was 100% God and 100% man, and He promised as the, the incarnate God of the universe, the incarnate Christ, that He would be with us, and learned that the promise of His presence gives us, uh, gives us confidence no matter what fa- threats we may face in this life. Last week, we saw that Jesus is the promised Prince of Peace. That He would come to His people and that despite the darkness that may surround us and even the darkness that may be true and present within us or within our covenant community, that Jesus gives us reason to rejoice despite it all because He promises to be that light in the darkness that overwhelms the darkness and we live in anticipation for the day when He will finally administrate shalom, peace over all of the world. This morning, we are looking then now at the promises that come from Luke and that first arrival of Jesus Christ. And in it, we see the announcement of his birth, and we find in that announcement that his arrival has been worth the wait. It's worth the wait because he is the promised Son of God. Now, something that I want to, to, to clarify in this is that there is a distinction that needs to be made when we think of Jesus as God the Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity who has clothed himself in flesh to dwell among us. We focused on the doctrine of the deity of Jesus as God the Son in that first series, when we talk, or that first sermon, when we talked about God is, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. There's a distinction, though, between God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and Jesus the Son of God. It's a fine distinction, but it's one that we need to clarify in this, because in Luke's gospel, we see the Sonship of Jesus Christ is less a declaration of His deity than it really is a demonstration of His unique fellowship, His unique relationship with the Father, and in showing us and displaying for us this unique fellowship with the Father, it reveals to us the unique purposes that Jesus has come to fulfill specifically related to the promises of God. Paul will later tell us in the book of Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That's why it's through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. Jesus as the Son of God is the ultimate fulfillment of all of the promises that God had made throughout the Old Testament. Not merely as the Son of God is he the fulfillment of those, but specifically this morning I want to see how he is that. Think of it like this. Throughout the Old Testament, from Genesis all the way through Malachi, God has planted seeds in the soil of his word and in the hearts of his people and the soil of his nation that they have been anticipating will come to life and bear fruit. And throughout the Old Testament, the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the sovereignty of God as He is orchestrating things and bringing things together through His his people and His nation and His prophets and His kings, God is nurturing the soil and He's preparing for the day that those seeds, those promises that He has made to His people throughout history will finally come to life. And they come to life most clearly and most evidently in His Son. So this morning, I want to look at three promises uniquely tied to Jesus's identity as the Son of God. First off, as the Son of God, Jesus is the better Adam. Luke makes a really interesting connection with this notion of the Son of God with Adam. If you just take your Bible and you turn it maybe a page or a couple of pages into Luke chapter 3. And in Luke chapter 3, we find that Luke provides for us a genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew also provides us with a genealogy of Jesus Christ, but Luke's is distinct in certain ways, many of which we're not going to get into this morning. But one specific way that that Luke's genealogy is distinct from Matthew's is the fact that Luke goes beyond David, beyond Abraham, all the way back to when he finishes in verse 38, that Canaan was the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the Son of God. Luke, who is a Gentile, most likely writing to Gentiles, understands that Jesus' genealogy and his lineage extends beyond David, beyond Abraham, all the way back to the father of all humanity. In his commentary on the book of Luke, Robert Stein says this, Luke's universalistic perspective must be seen here. Jesus is the fulfillment, not just of Jewish hopes, but the hopes of all people, both Jew and Gentile. For out of Adam, the whole, of human, the whole human family has come, and Jesus is the son of Adam and is the son of God. Now, the context of Luke's genealogy matters. If you were to read that and read at the, the verses that come before the genealogy and the verses that come after the genealogy, what you find is that in the verses just before, in verse 22 of chapter 3, it is the end of Jesus' baptism, and as he comes out of the water, there is this, pro, this proclamation that comes from God the Father in heaven who declares, Jesus, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Luke then immediately goes into the genealogy of Jesus and takes it all the way back to Jesus being the son of Adam, the son of God. And then he returns to the story of Jesus Christ, and Jesus at that point, after his baptism, what does he do? Led by the Holy Spirit, he goes out into the desert, and there he fasts for 40 days, and it is there that he faces the devil. And he is tempted by the Satan. And Satan brings three temptations to Jesus Christ. And in the first one and in the last one, he gives this slight, this dig at Jesus' heart and his character as he says, if you are the Son of God, then. You see, Luke is tying all of that together. That Jesus, as the Son of God, goes out into the desert to be tempted by Satan. And Christians and scholars and pastors throughout the years have noted the many different contrasts between the temptation of Jesus Christ and the temptation of Adam. As Jesus went out into a desert place where there was no water, where there was no people, where he was completely alone. Whereas Adam was in a fruitful garden, surrounded by all of the luxuries of life at that particular time, and was with his wife, Eve, as she was being tempted. Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days and was hungry and was starving. Adam had all of the fruit of the garden around him and could feast at any point that he wanted and was actually encouraged by God to freely eat of any tree in the garden. And on and on the comparisons go, and what we see is that everything that Adam had, Jesus didn't, and yet he withstood the temptation of the enemy. Adam failed to guard his heart and to guard his home, condemning the world to brokenness. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, for as by one man came death. Verse 22, for as in Adam all died. But whereas Adam failed to guard his heart and his home, Jesus withstands the schemes of the devil, proving both his righteousness and proving himself to be the better Adam. The fullness of verses 21 and 22 of 1 Corinthians 15 is this. For as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is something that doesn't come... Out of the blue, it was a fulfillment of one of God's earliest promises. The very first seed, pun intended that Jesus planted in Genesis chapter 3:15 where after the temptation in the middle of his discipline of Adam and then of the serpent and then Eve and then Adam right smack dab in the heart of the passage God makes this promise I will put enmity between you the serpent and the woman between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel It's the very first promise of a savior It's the very first promise that a snake crusher would come who would rescue and redeem his people, who would be greater than his father Adam, who failed to crush the head of the serpent when the serpent came to declare war on his home and on his heart, and Jesus would be victorious. And what we see in the arrival of Jesus Christ is God's faithfulness to keep his promise in sending his Son the one who withstood the devil's schemes in the desert and dealt the blow of death when he died in our place on the cross. Adam desired to climb high and become like God, and in doing so, he condemned us to death. But Jesus bent low, becoming a man, and died in our place, that we might receive the promise of life. As the Son of God, Jesus is the better Adam. and As the Son of God, Jesus is also the better David. In chapter 1, verse 27, that we read all the way back, Luke anticipates the notion that this birth is tied to the house of David. Verse 27, that Mary is a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Luke, like Matthew, is keen to prove that Jesus was adopted by Joseph, who was a direct descendant of the greatest Jewish king, David. Now, this matters as Luke is anchoring Jesus' purpose into the history of God's chosen people. And again, in the linkage between Jesus Christ and the house of David, he's proving God to be faithful to his promises. John Piper said in a sermon this way, God broke into the universe not as a generic human being, but funneling down from Adam, but as a Jew in fulfillment of 2,000 years of covenant promises so that Israel would glorify God for his truthfulness and all the nations would glorify God for his mercy. He came as the son of David and as the son of God, a Jew to vindicate every promise and a man to identify with every nation. In verses 32 to 33, Gabriel says that this child who will be born, who is the heir of David, is going to receive the throne. That he is going to reign over the house of Jacob. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This child that is born is not just any other child. This child is a king. And not just any king. This child is the heir to the greatest kingdom that has ever been known by man, not by worldly standards, but by heavenly standards, because that kingdom was the kingdom that God uniquely placed his name upon and where in which in their capital city God chose to take up his residence. And he is the descendant, the child, the heir of David. So Gabriel, at God's behest, informs Mary this child is going to inherit everything that was David's, and in doing so, he confirms this child as the promised Messiah. And this promise was made to David all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There we read this, Moreover, the Lord declares to you, that's David, that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, the context of this particular conversation is unique, and it matters. David, who was a man after God's own heart, as he has established um, his throne and his kingdom, and it is fairly secure, is cut to the heart about the reality that he lives in a lavish castle and God lives in a tent. And the tabernacle still exists, and so his heart is to build God a house, a glorious temple from which the whole world will understand how great his God actually is. And so he is going to prepare for that, and God's prophet Nathan says... Go after it. Do what's in your heart. Your, what's in your heart is a good desire. Until God shows up and says, Nathan, you were wrong. Now you got to go back and walk back your words. And so Nathan comes with a promise to, to David that says, listen, from God, you're not going to build me a house, a physical structure. I'm going to build you a house, a line of kings that will ultimately result in a king that will never be overthrown in a king that will never falter or fail. You see, David was a king who had failed. David was a king who had established his throne with the blood of his enemies. Jesus or David had fallen. And as such, even though he was a man after God's own heart and he received God's grace, he was nevertheless one who gave into his sin was a liar and a murderer, a rapist. And that problem in David's heart echoed and amplified with his children. You can go and you look at Psalm 89, where Ethan writes in Psalm 89 verses 3 and 4, his anticipation for this coming king. In verse 3, he says, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. He says, this is a reason to be praising God because of his faithfulness. And yet, by the time you get to the end of Psalm 89, Ethan is no longer joyous. He is now in lamentation as he cries out in verse 38, but now you've cast off and rejected." God, you are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. And that's where we find Mary and Joseph and the people and the world into which Jesus was born. There's no throne of David for him to inherit. That throne was flipped over centuries before he was born. And they existed under Roman rule, and Rome would would allow no rival king and would wage war on any king that was born. And then you've got Herod, who is not of the line of David, sitting on a throne, and he is threatened by the arrival of this baby and wants to destroy him, we'll see, in Matthew. Nevertheless, none of David's descendants lived up to the promises. The throne was done away with. Still, nothing is impossible for God. And so with the birth of this child, hope is once again reignited as an heir to the throne has been born. And whereas David was a king who poured out the blood of his enemies, Jesus came as the king who poured out his blood for his enemies. David was a king with sin on his record, but Jesus is the king whose blood washes records clean. He ascended now by taking the road to the cross as Matt Song pointed out his throne was a cross where he was crucified lifted high and raised up to fulfill yet another promise that if you would lift up Jesus Christ he would draw all men to himself but through that death and through his resurrection Jesus Christ also then ascended to the throne of the universe And he is now at the right hand of the Father and has authority over all things everywhere. And there is no one who will ever be able to topple his throne or defeat his kingdom. And so in him, not only do we receive a promise of life, we also receive the promise of security that there will be a king who will never falter, who will never fail, who will never be overthrown, but who will always rule with compassion and love. And as the Son of God, Jesus is the better Adam and the better David. But Jesus is also the better heir. In verse 35, Gabriel says that this child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Now, it's tempting to read that and see when Jesus is called holy, that he is somehow, he's talking about his birth, and so Jesus is sinless. But the truth of the matter is that's not necessarily what Luke is referring to in this particular point. Instead, Luke actually later in chapter 2, verse 23, reminds people, as it's written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. The firstborn son was one who was set apart, and that's what holy throughout the Bible means. It is something that is set aside for a unique purpose, something that is set aside with a specific blessing, something that is set aside particularly for God and God alone. And so the firstborn son was to be special, to be set apart, and that is true also of Jesus Christ, born with a specific purpose of the Lord. He is the firstborn of God, and as such is the heir of everything that belongs to God. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 1. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Jesus Christ is the firstborn son. Jesus Christ is the ultimate heir of everything that is belo- that belongs to God. But he's not the kind of firstborn son who keeps things to himself. Later on in the book of Luke, you're going to find that famous parable, the parable of the prodigal son. And if you'll remember, it's a father with two sons. And it's the younger son who's the wayward son. It's the younger son who runs and wastes everything that was his father's. In reality, that's what prodigal means. Prodigal doesn't mean wayward. Prodigal means wasteful. He takes everything that was his and everything that was left to him and given to him by his Father, and he wastes it on nothing. If that doesn't reflect our hearts, to take everything promised to us by God and waste it on things that don't matter in this life, we are that wasteful, wayward son, wallowing in a pig's sty when a father's love waits us at home. But in that parable, there's another brother, a big brother who is selfish, a big brother who is self-righteous, a big brother who is upset when his younger brother comes home, and even more upset when his father has the audacity to give him anything. And the entire purpose of that whole parable is to expose the reality that the Pharisees are that big brother who see themselves as right with God but are self-righteous and who don't want to see any of these Gentiles come to the Lord and they are so full of themselves and they are so much like the older brother and they are so unlike Jesus who sits with the sinners because he's the better, bigger brother who left heaven and found us in the pigsty and enters into the pigsty to wrap us up in his arms and take us home to the Father. And when he gets us home, he doesn't sit on what is his, but he gives everything that is his us. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, if the children, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Jesus Christ is the heir to the throne of the universe, gives to those who are in Him and therefore adopted as children of God all that is His. And He promises to secure our eternal inheritance in heaven. And He promises to grant us all that we need for life and godliness now, 2 Peter chapter 1. In Jesus We have the promise of an everlasting life. In Jesus, we have the promise of a secure kingdom. In Jesus, we have the promise of an eternal inheritance. Unfortunately, we're waiting for it. And we might have an appetizer here and there, a a taste of what is yet to come. But for the most part, our lives are lives full of faith as we wait for the revelation of these things, as we wait for the reception of these things in their full, as we wait for the day when we will finally live in the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, at the time in which all tears will be wiped away and everything that is broken will be repaired, everything that is wrong will be made right. As we wait in the midst of the mire and the muck and the pigsty that oftentimes, is this world as we wait with the anxiety and the stress of broken promises and we ask, will God actually fulfill His promises? Even second Peter in Second Peter, he anticipates prophets and pastors and priests who will stand up and will declare that the time has already come or that it won't even come at all. And he and every single other New Testament apostle says, hold firm the faith and hold fast to the gospel because it's our tendency in the midst of this dark and broken and bitter world to be ripped away from the hope that exists in Jesus Christ and to descend into despair and depression and hopelessness as we feel like things will never get better. And then that voice creeps into our head that says, even if he does fulfill his promises, will it really be worth it in the end? And you have friends and family in this Christmas season whose hearts are asking those questions. I look at your life and I wonder, is it really worth it? Because you seem awful miserable all the time. That was a joke. Jesus is proof enough. Not only does God fulfill all his promises, but it's worth the wait. So when the waiting gets hard, when the waiting seems hopeless, I encourage you to be reminded by the first arrival of Jesus Christ, that there is a promised second arrival of Jesus Christ. So let us be found faithful in the waiting as we anticipate the day when all things will be made right. And let our faith and our hope and the reminder that comes from Scripture that, Jesus is, that God is faithful to, to fulfill His promises Be what carries us through the difficult and dark and desperate times. Look to Jesus and find your hope in Him, because He's better than your greatest hero. He's bigger than your greatest problem. And He promises to be with you and for you.